And, you know, when we were talking about it, we've got to deploy this thing on the ground, make sure that it can do its job exactly as it was designed for the competition. But he was thinking beyond that. And he was like, you know, we, we could do connectivity in lots of other ways, right? Not just in this context, but we could build a company around connectivity in areas where it doesn't exist, even if it's not in the context of a natural disaster. So, you know, he started talking about doing space ducks. I'm like, this guy's out there. <laughs> so I go on Twitter one day and I see a picture with a duck logo, the duck link, I am the curve of the earth. <laughs> I'm like, how do you do this? He had, he had connected with his buddies at Cal Poly. Welcome to another Conversations with Des. I'm Des Blanchfield, your host. Today I have the pleasure of being joined in the studio by Daniel Crook. Now, Daniel is the Chief Technology Officer for both IBM Code and Response, as well as Call for Code. Now, we'll get into the detail of what they are and what a day in the life of Daniel's like in a moment. Um, first, let me just give you a bit of background on, on Daniel himself. So he's been recognized as an IBM and Open Group Distinguished technical specialist. He's a senior technical staff member and master inventor, member of the IBM Academy of Technology, uh, best of IBM honoree. Uh, he graduated from Trinity College, uh, has a double major in political science and international studies. He's also studied abroad in Cuba and South Africa, which we'd love to get into in a minute. Holds dual uh, citizenship with the US and Finland EU citizenship and uh, has collaborated with colleagues throughout his uh, career around the world, uh, some uh, one and a half decades, in fact, uh, inside IBM. Uh, Daniel, welcome to the show. Thanks for joining us. Great. Thanks for having me, Des. It's quite a pedigree to, to, to lead into there. Now, I'd love to dive into what a day in the life of uh, Daniel Crooker's uh, CTO, both in IBM Code and Response, as well as Call for Code is. But before we do that, I often ask my guests to sort of pivot sideways and just give us a little insight into you personally, as to uh, you know, where you grew up, where you're from a bit of your background around your uh, career path and your academic history that sort of got you to this amazing role. Sure. So I grew up about an hour east of New York City uh, in Connecticut. Um, so in American football terms, that's still New York Giants territory, uh, definitely not uh, New England Patriots territory. Um, so my parents immigrated to Connecticut uh, 50 and 51 years ago, uh, respectively. Actually, we just had a celebration uh, with them doing some of the interesting things in New York City, um, such as the uh, the Immigrant Museum, the Tenement Museum uh, downtown, um, as well as visiting some interesting uh, places throughout Brooklyn and Queens. So um, I've because of that, I've. I've also been a dual citizenship, a dual citizen, as you mentioned, uh, which has opened up lots of great career and educational and travel opportunities around the globe. Um, so I, um, I, I did attend a small liberal arts school in, in Hartford called Trinity College, uh, which I was drawn to because um, it's got an American football program, Division Three. But uh, it was pretty uh, one of the things that attracted me to the school, as well as a broad curriculum of what you could do there. So I wasn't quite sure what I wanted to do when I grew up. Um, I did assume maybe I would follow my sister's path into political science. Uh, she's a currently a women in politics professor at Rutgers University in New Jersey. Uh, and I did double major in political science and international studies, like you said. But uh, I was fortunate enough to live in the same dorm with folks who did study computer science, uh, including a woman from Trinidad, uh, Nicole Green, who introduced me to web development in 1995. So uh, um, that led me after the first dot-com crash um, kind of into um, the, uh, the startups around 2000. And uh, I've been in technology uh, essentially um, my entire career, uh, most of it at IBM. So um, 
in this role, I've, 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 at IBM, I've largely remained in a technical role, uh, working on open source technologies throughout those 15 years. So building Java and PHP web apps, laying the foundation for, for the IBM cloud on OpenStack and Cloud Foundry uh, and some of the early work on Kubernetes, um, and more recently working on developer advocacy on serverless technologies uh, based on Apache OpenWhisk. Wow, that's phenomenal. We're kindred souls in so many ways. You're kind of, you're in the same space I sort of come from that uh, with 35 years of being a, a geek from the mainframe days and PDPs and VAXs all the way through to kind of what we're doing these days. I, I look at a lot of what we're doing now and in many ways I kind of look at uh, cloud and think that there's just little LPARs really. But um, that's a pretty <laughs> amazing background. I love the fact you started out uh, cutting uh, web pages and things back in 95. That means you've been there, done that and bought the T-shirt in many ways. Mm-hmm. Now, um, the two roles you've got, I'm interested in diving into those a little bit and, and getting to know, I guess, a, a bit about kind of what a day in the life of, of Daniel Crook is like. Um, firstly, let's start with IBM Code and Response. Uh, give us a bit of background for listeners as to what that actually is and what it entails. Sure. So IBM Code and Response is the framework that takes the ideas that come from the competitions like Call for Code and provides the framework to actually uh, build them out and deploy them uh, where they're going to make a difference. So the thing that set Call for Code apart when we first launched it last year was that we didn't just want to set up a hackathon for good and inspire developers to, to create applications that would have no end goal or, or would be throwaway code. Um, what we always wanted to put in place was a support framework um, that's funding, that's open source community building, that's introductions to potential investment um, and recognition through the award itself. Um, so IBM Code and Response uh, essentially is a program for taking the ideas that come through that innovation funnel um, and giving them the tools they need to succeed. It's an amazing in initiative. And I, the thing I, I love about what IBM does is they don't just uh, sort of band-aid things and, and try them, set them, forget them, and then move on. As you just alluded, you, you build an entire commercial framework that supports a technology framework and then a business framework can take things to market. And as we saw last year with, with the, the winners of Call for Code, which we'll get into in a moment. Um, and Call for Code, let's talk about that briefly for folk who have probably heard more than they want to out of my feed through LinkedIn and Twitter and other social uh, content and blogs and even podcasts last year. But in essence, it's, it's a global hackathon. I think, what, 180,000 people participated last year on probably the same scale this year. Um, originated from uh, something that was put together by a fellow by the name of David Clark and his David Clark Cause Project, um, where he puts together programs to seek funding and support from companies just like IBM to, to do amazing projects. And uh, you're now in the second year, um, 2018, uh, when it was launched last year. I had the privilege of being part of that as well. Um, maybe give us a little insight into kind of what uh, Call for Code is and then um, uh, your role in it, and let's maybe dive into some of the detail of what's happening this year with it. Sure, sure. Yeah, and you, of course you did a great podcast with Angel Luis uh, Diaz and David Clark last year to get all the, the, the full history of it. But in a nutshell, um, essentially it's a $30 million five-year program that we launched in 2018 um, along with partners, uh, the Linux Foundation, the American Red Cross, United Nations Human Rights Office, and a, and a range of public and private partners. Uh, and the goal with the yearly competition, uh, which runs about four months each year, uh, this being our second year of it, is uh, to provide um, a framework to inspire developers. Uh, there's a growing number of them, 24 million maybe at the last count, um, who've got a growing um, array of skills um, that they can apply to many problems in the world, including humanitarian issues. So what we try to do with Call for Code each year is, is bring together experts on those humanitarian issues, such as natural disasters, 
um, first responders, um, people who are familiar with responding to these issues, match them up, their expertise up with developers who hopefully can bring brand new solutions to the table. Um, helping uh, us achieve uh, some joint goals uh, such as the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals uh, for 2030 um, with technology and kind of accelerate the improvement of preparation, response, and recovery from natural disasters. So natural disasters has been the theme the last two years. Uh, we might change it up in the future, but it's always going to be uh, focused on um, uh, you know, a pressing humanitarian issue. So uh, we ran last year's competition. Um, Again, it grew. We had more participation this year, and uh, we look forward to having it again in the future. That's no, very exciting. I think for, um, so it's described as a multi-year initiative. I, I think originally the uh, outline was about five years, I think, the, the funding ran over from memory. Is that correct? That's right, yes. And, I mean, $30 million uh, is a big chunk of coin to throw at anything. Um, when we think about hackathons, we often think about uh, enterprises running sort of weekend long things and, and putting people in, in rooms where they get a bit stinky and sweaty for 48 hours eating uh, uh, fast food and sugary water. But, I mean, this is a multi-month thing that it runs annually or now in the second year, which is fantastic. Congratulations on a great year last year. But uh, maybe just outline the structure of it because I think when people think about hackathons, they think about something they might have participated in at work or something for social activity locally. I know there's a lot run by city councils here in Australia where you, you – you rock up for a weekend and do some great things. But this runs for multiple months. Uh, it runs globally. Uh, I think last time I looked, it's in over something like 140 nations around the world and 180,000 people participating just in the competitor space. That's not including all the relevant folk around the organizations and, and also IBM. Um, so give us a little insight into kind of how that long-running hackathon model works because it's it's sort of the other end of the spectrum of what a hackathon might uh, seem like, but it's all the same constituent elements, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, even the word hackathon, it's 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 hard to see if this fits into kind of that definition. But going back to the central goal of Call for Code, right? What we want is you know high quality, sustainable things, important applications that are going to solve an issue with technology. So to do that, you need the longer time frame, uh, but you do still have those same elements that are um, that are going to come together. And and those you know weekend hackathons are great. In fact, we do a lot of satellite events around Call for Code, in particular uh, part of Angel Hacks Global Series. Uh, where they do weekend hackathons in cities around the world um, in places as varied as uh, as Gaza, as uh, out in the Pacific uh, Indian Ocean, um, as in Europe, in in South America, around the world. Uh, so it's great to get those those in, people engaged in those um, 24-hour events or 48-hour events to get started. And then what we hope people do is kind of take that idea um, and bring it forth, develop it further, and enter it in the Call for Code competition. So in fact, when we get to talking about uh, the finalists for this year's competition, uh, many of them did come from those satellite events. They got the seed of the idea, and then they work to improve it uh, through the rest of the months. But the goal is we want to um, match those developers with those um, those requirements or those needs expressed by our partners in, in the NGO community. And what we do as IBM is provide technology in the middle that developers can start from. So uh, that's open source technology that we support, such as Kubernetes and Cloud Foundry and OpenWhisk and, and others, but also uh, the IBM services, the cloud, the data, the AI, 
services that they can put together to build applications. So essentially, as a developer goes through the competition, uh, they learn about um, the specific needs that exist out there, and we provide starting points for them. Uh, this year, actually, we also provide some starter kits based on a meeting we had with experts at the United Nations in Geneva to understand um, the key global issues affecting um, uh, populations, vulnerable populations around the world, and we created what were called starter kits. So a developer can either take a bunch of um, IBM sample code that we already have as part of our regular developer advocacy resources. Uh, they can look at videos, for example, interviews with folks from FEMA uh, or from the United Nations, Red Cross, other organizations. Um, they can also look at those starter kits. And essentially, that gives them a running start towards developing new applications that can make a difference. And uh, we mentor folks, we do live streams, we release brand new um, code patterns, which are complete solutions to a problem that can be uh, used as starting points throughout the competition. And, and of course, with the in-person events, uh, we help people with direct access to, to experts to answer their questions. So through this whole multi-month program, um, we give them, we lay out the, the problems facing the world that, um, that it may be in look of, uh, search of a technological solution. Uh, we give some starting points, and then we mentor folks through the program. So that helps us steer around um, creating high-quality applications. And then we, after the competition, even if those solutions don't win, uh, we like to support them through the code and response program uh, to make sure that they're going to have an impact if it's valuable technology. I mean, there's so much there to unbundle. It's, it's exciting. The thing that struck me last year going through this process myself um, and, you know, you're well and truly now at the point where you've got uh, five finalists, which we'll talk about in a moment because you have an exciting uh, announcement, which we'll get to. But just before we do that, two quick things I wanted to cover. I mean, people go through this journey of registering for the project and, and, and I guess joining or forming teams, creating a, a plan and, and sort of start building things. And as you said, you've already got some code patterns that they can use. You've got all the other constituent elements. The thing that struck me at the end of this is that if you participate in this and you run through the entire multi-month uh, uh, program, you pop out, you've got these amazing business and technology and networking skills, as in people networking, that you, there's almost no other candidate for. When I sort of think about all the little things that people can tick the boxes on of, of going and, and networking and meeting individuals and peers and getting mentorship from, from IBM and all of the relevant organizations around it, getting access to some of the tools you've got, whether it's blockchain, natural language processing and Watson and uh, all the data science support, data science platform, data science experience, the, the weather company, uh, there's just so much. Um, when you get to the end of this, even if you didn't win, you, you are still winning because you've just got this amazing CV of experience and, and knowledge and, and, and I guess breadth of connectivity that you, you're almost a guarantee to be employable, uh, which I think is something that hasn't necessarily been documented yet in my mind. But it's one of those things that's like a lifetime experience regardless of whether you win. Um, now, uh, last, I want to quickly just touch on last year's winner before we dive into your exciting announcement today, the five uh, uh, solutions that have sort of made the, the semifinal, if you like. Um, so I had the pleasure of catching up with um, the uh, crew that were here in Sydney, I think it was, uh, a couple of months ago, who had won last year, and in particular, uh, Daniel Knaus, uh, uh Brian Knaus, sorry, uh, pronounce his name correctly, Brian Knaus, uh, from Project Owl. And uh, they had this amazing project based on a platform that... Uh, essentially ran like a wireless uh, mesh network with these little things called a, a duck that uh, were dispersed, little 3D printed uh, hexagonal-style cu uh, cubes and uh, ran a network that you could move data across when telco and other infrastructure was out. Um, maybe can we just quickly talk about what uh, Project Owl was about, what it created, and their journey 
and, and how they sort of came about to win. And then we'll sort of circle back into who's on the uh, podium so far for 2019. Sure, sure. So, yeah, last year's winner, uh, and there was a grand prize winner as well as four runners up, uh, which is the same structure again this year. Because it's, it's amazing how many great ideas come through that, you know, we want to recognize and provide support for. But um, Project Owl was the grand prize winner last year. And what they created was a combination hardware and software solution. Uh, and the goal, the fundamental goal of what they built was to establish uh, temporary networks quickly in the wake of a natural disaster. So the goal isn't to restore full communications, uh, full cell phone access, full uh, wireless networks, full uh, fiber optic network connectivity. But what they do is, and the niche they fill is essentially in just the hours after a storm, can you deploy a mesh network um, composed of these little uh, duck links, as they call them, um, in an area to establish just about 1% connectivity, right? Just enough so people can use that to uh, express their needs over the network. Um, so what's really clever about what they built is that it's it's cheap hardware, it's self-assembling, uh, self-organizing. Um, Once the devices are turned on, they, they take on the role that they will serve within the network. Um, and they expose a wireless network network that requires the end user not to have anything installed on their computer, on their phone, whatever device they have still that has power. Um, it, 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 it presents the captive portal window. So when you join a wireless network, uh, for example, at a hotel or at a coffee shop, you get that login prompt. That's what it uh, leverages. Um, and that provides an interface just to provide uh, a short amount of data through that form out across the network and eventually um, up, up um, through an uplink uh, somewhere else uh, beyond the area where it can be sent to a dashboard. Uh, and the dashboard itself can visualize where those needs are coming in from um, so that um, an incident commander, a first responder, uh, local authorities can get a view of once this network's been deployed, where people are, what they need so they can prioritize their response. I, uh, now, when we were off air, I, you shared a funny little moment there. What I'd like to just uh, recap on uh, these little cyber ducks, I think they're nicknamed, that form the mesh network. Uh, when I caught up with Brian Canals here in Sydney and uh, got him on camera, and we had a great old chat about kind of his win and uh, his kind of world tour, I think it was, of sharing the great story. He jokingly referred to wanting to get one into space, but I understand that he's achieved that goal. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Brian's an amazing guy, right? He's, 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 he's a brilliant fellow, always thinking about kind of the future of, of where he could take the technology. And, you know, when we were talking about it, we're like, oh, you know, we've got we've to deploy this thing on the ground. We've got to make sure that, you know, it, it can do its job exactly as as kind of it's it was designed for the competition but he was thinking beyond that and he was like you know we we could do connectivity in lots of other ways right not just in this context but we could build a company around connectivity in areas where you know perhaps it, it doesn't exist even if it's not in the context of a natural disaster so you know he started talking about doing space ducks i'm like this guy's this guy's out there <laughs> but um i love so it I'm like, well, oh, but he's thinking and, and then so i go on twitter one day and i see a picture with a duck logo the duck link i in the curve of the earth <laughs> i'm like how did he do this he had he had connected with his buddies at cal poly in california and he um put a duck up on one of their weather balloons and he was testing connectivity you know at, at high um altitudes I, and it, it, he, he got some meaningful impact in, in input from that test uh that helped him kind of optimize how they're going to tweak the um the protocols on the device to to, to minimize um you know uh, bandwidth but also extend the range so it was it was amazing and it's great to see that 
just innovation, the, the outside the box thinking coming from uh, from that group, and we're we're looking to see what Project Owl can do as as a business, as a company based on open source technology. It's just amazing. It reminds me of Buzz Lightyear and To Infinity and Beyond because uh, he's, he's he's literally the Energizer Bunny. If you ever meet him in person, he's just like so much energy is buzzing. You could just plug into him and charge 2,000 phones. The thing that really struck me when I was talking to Brian, though, was he, he mentioned this great uh, storyline around how he was sitting in a Starbucks, I think it was, and uh, a colleague of his just rang him and said, hey, there's this great thing you've got to participate in and, and over a phone call convinced him to, to take part in it. And uh, you know, he'd had plenty of history in hackathons from what I'm saying. He was kind of like the world champion of hackathons that were and, and threw himself into this. But they, he's taken it the whole way through. So not only did they win the amazing couple hundred thousand dollar prize, but they've gone through that entire journey that the winners do uh, become awarded with, which is, uh, you know, commercial support, mentoring, access to VCs and that whole journey. So they've now launched a venture and gotten this thing out to the market from what I understand. That's right. Yeah. And so what they did, so they won the competition, which which gave them access to to five prizes. Right. So the recognition of the, the first annual Call Code Global Award itself, uh, they got that cash prize. They got best practices from the Linux Foundation um, and some advice on how to uh, to build out their solution, in, uh, build a business around open source. Uh, they had a meeting with venture capital, but they also got access to five experts from IBM um, as part of our corporate service core program. So this is something that's been um, we've been using for 10 years uh, as IBM to deploy experts to consult normally uh, with a beneficiary partner uh, somewhere around the world um, to help them improve what they do. So the prototypical um, corporate service core deployment used to be something like um, deploy a set of experts to benefit UNICEF in Bhopal, India, who are trying to do a digital transformation from paper records to technology uh, to improve how quickly they can serve their mission, uh, which is to help children. So we gave the Project Al folks, um, the corporate service core team, hardware expert, a software expert, a branding expert, a first responder who was also a UI expert, um, as as well as um, a set of other uh, folks that could help them improve the technology. So they, not only having won the competition, we gave them the support structure to deploy with our contacts in Puerto Rico from the public and private sector to improve what they built um, and learn from that and give them the runway um, and help them refine their business model so that they can create something sustainable around what they built. Um, and so we're, we're still engaged with them, uh, as well as other projects that have come in that didn't necessarily win uh, the competition, but were runners up last year uh, to help them do similar types of things uh, with advice, with funding, uh, with mentorship. Well, you know, there were some amazing projects last year, and I watched the whole thing come to its uh, fruition and an exciting journey for the for the launch year, the inaugural year. Uh, but I have to say that uh, hats off to uh, Brian and his team, because I think there could be no better champion for the cause uh, as far as, you know, the team to win and, and somebody to, to lead that cause, because he, he really just embodies the entire thing from end to end. And, and uh, I, I hope someday someone writes a book about him because it'll be a fascinating read. But now let's pivot back to 2019. We're into the second year. Um, it's uh, getting towards the end of the entire journey for, for the competition now. And you've had uh, some exciting news, which I won't steal your thunder on, but it was announced, uh, I believe, 9 o'clock this morning. It was under embargo prior to that, and I think it went live on TechCrunch from memory. So um, take it away. Tell us what was announced this morning, and we'll dive into the, the gory detail of what's inside that. 
Sure, sure. So we announce the top five finalists, um, meaning that they will place uh, somewhere either as the grand prize winner or one of the four runners up. Um, so we announced those yesterday. And they will be the ultimate winner will be selected from that group um, and announced at the United Nations uh, Delegates Dining Room in New York City on October 12th. Um, so just about uh, three weeks out is when um, we'll find out who will be essentially the next Project OWL. Um, so we had participation um, submissions, applications from all over the world, and, and it was pretty tough to get to this point. Um, we... As the judging progressed, we we had um, IBM developer advocates inspect um, the technology solutions in one round, and then we had experts from um, 30 different organizations uh, representing uh, FirstNet, representing the United Nations uh, Disaster Risk Reduction, um, refugee councils in Denmark, a whole bunch of experts, then sort through the applications to understand the ones that were solving real problems with creative solutions. And once they once and the, once they were selected by that round, they now go to the final round of judges, uh, which is comprised of 12 experts, um, eminent technologists, such as the head of the United Nations Human Rights Office, the head of United Nations Disaster Risk Reduction, um, leaders in the American Red Cross, uh, former President Bill Clinton, um, and folks from uh, Stuart Butterfield from Slack, uh, Jim Zemlin from the Linux Foundation. There's a bunch of experts are now looking at these five finalists um, to select the one that's going to make the greatest impact. And what they're primarily looking at is is there was four judging criteria through the call for code competition um, and in the earlier rounds as well, is looking at how complete these solutions are, um, how potentially transferable they are. So for example, if someone built an application focused on um, disaster response in Puerto Rico for hurricanes, is it something that also can be used for cyclones in Mozambique, typhoons in the Philippines? Uh, does it have that vision uh, for a future where, where it's going to be it's going to have a great impact. Uh, so that was one criteria. Another is effectiveness and efficiency. So is it solving a real problem well? Is it using technology in the right way um, to add value rather than detract um, or cause more complexity? Uh, they're also looking at, you know, in the context of someone who's going to use this application under stress, um, in addition to maybe some of the tools they already have, um, is it usable? Is it it's something that can be picked up and immediately put to work? As I mentioned with Project Owl last year, uh, they didn't require the end user to download something new. Uh, they took advantage of things built into phones and, and um, computers as it is. And then the final um, uh, judging criteria was creativity and innovation. It's a bit of a wild card, uh, and it's really around how how new or how novel is this approach to solving a long-standing problem. Uh, and one of my favorite examples, actually, of this judging criteria uh, is we saw a solution last year called Sixth Sense. And what they decided to submit or create a solution around was they had done some research into the 2004 Boxing Day tsunami that affected Sri Lanka um, in the Indian Ocean uh, in Indonesia. And they looked at a particular instance of uh, some wild game movement, uh, large animals on Sri Lanka. And there was evidence that these large animals had moved to higher ground. Um, and therefore, there was not um, as great a loss of animal life as human life. So they were trying to understand what could be learned from that. What did these animals know that humans didn't know, uh, even in the state-of-the-art disaster preparedness technology? And they realized maybe if we could track these animals, see where they're going um, on a topological map upland, um, where they're going uh, coordinates-wise, you know, um, 
uh, which direction and uh, use this information, somehow tag these animals um, to provide an additional sixth sense that could help in early warning systems. So the idea was fantastic. Of course, they didn't score well in completeness because you know they couldn't create something based on that idea in the context of the competition. Uh, but it was really creative, really innovative. And so um, what we are looking in for in these applications are things that score well across all four of those areas. So some of the ideas, you know, they may not be fully complete, but they're really addressing an important problem that needs a technology solution, and they're doing it in a way that's going to be quickly adopted. Um, so that's what the final judges are looking at, and they will then select the ultimate winner. Wow. Uh, the Sixth Sense Project reminded me of the, um, I think the movie was a Deep Impact asteroid comes and hits earth and uh, everyone's making a run for higher ground um but it seems that uh, technology in many ways looks back at nature and millions of years of uh, evolution and we sort of relearn some of these things um i was uh, particularly uh, excited by the comment you made with regard to the fact that uh last year the project owl uh team leveraged technology that already existed in many ways so as you said when you walk into either an airport or a shop or a store or some other place, your phone will pop up and, and, and offer you access to the Wi-Fi if it's available or have information that pops up from kiosks. The fact that, that you didn't have to do anything, you just walk outside with your phone assuming it was charged and powered on and it started providing you access to, to the network and information was just mind-blowing because you didn't have to change anything. You just kept using it in the normal use case and the infrastructure that they'd rolled out provided a solution for you. L- let's Now, one of the things I, I wanted to highlight there was that you know this we're talking about five... Uh, uh, I guess, um, uh, teams that have been selected for, I think it's described as the uh, People's Choice winner at this stage, uh, out of 100,000 ideas. Is that right? Uh, yeah, there was lots of participation from developers around the world. And yeah, these these surfaced from uh, folks that put together you know applications for the competition. So we had lots of people participating and creating applications. Some of them didn't submit. But, um, but these were the top ones that came through the process. So they had put together... Uh, compelling code, compelling roadmaps of a future plan for them. Uh, they 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 put the context of what they're trying to solve, um, and they created really amazing videos demonstrating what they've built and how it can make an impact in the context of solutions that already exist. So yeah, very exciting applications came from uh, uh, around the world. Um, a couple applications uh, from developers in Europe, uh, North America, uh, India, and um, as you mentioned earlier, we did have people participate from 165 nations around the world, uh, which is just growth even from last year's 156, which is amazing. It's just astounding. But uh, to, to make the top five out of, out of 100,000 odd ideas even, it's just amazing. And congratulations to everyone getting to this point. Now, let's just quickly run through the five. So, and, and correct me if I get the pronunciation wrong. So I think, uh, was it uh, Prometeo um, or Prometeo, uh, sorry, from Europe? Um, I think you said it was from Spain. They developed a platform that leverages cognitive technology to take care of firefighters, health uh, and safety in real time uh, using sensors and monitoring and IoT and machine learning. There's um, uh, is it Aster, also from Europe, uh, that uses speech-to-text services and natural language processing to prioritise calls in uh, emergency circumstances, which we'll come into. Rove from North America uses AI to uh, help rescue workers identify uh, damaged roads and buildings so they can plan accordingly to reach victims faster in disaster scenarios. Sparrow from Asia-Pacific. Um, platform that connects those in need to a number of critical services during disasters, which we'll dive into. And Helios, also from North America, that uh, uses conversational services and AI to help connect uh, folk who have um, a need for mental health support. And I think it's described as a right case 
uh, support through Android apps and others. Um, maybe give us a speed dating outline of, of each of those. So, um, Prometeo, uh, give us a rundown of kind of what we should know about them. Because the when I mentioned before, this is now the people's choice round, right? So folk have the opportunity to go and vote uh, through, and we'll provide all the links and details in tweets and posts on LinkedIn and LinkedIn groups and other places, including the description of the show. But um, when we say people's choice winner at this stage, it's folk are going to be invited to vote for one of the five and also uh, amplify it with tweets and support. Um, so let's run through these five. Um, Prometeo, uh, tell us what you can about them. Sure. So this application comes from uh, a developer, project manager, architect, and two members of a Catalonian fire brigade. So what it does is build on the experience of the firefighters who are addressing wildfires in Spain. Uh, it's one of the big um, big pressing issues, not only in Spain, but across the world, right? That's why we like to see a nice transferable application. It's going to maybe you know, help some of the Amazon uh, in California, uh, as well as there in Spain. But it comes from um, a team of developers in Formed by uh, the experience of firefighters, and what it does is it's a hardware solution that, um, like Owl, uh, reports back readings to a dashboard, um, so that um, incident, uh, the the incident commanders at the fire station can understand the exposure of each individual firefighter over time, and therefore kind of uh, provide some recommendations, kind of see what things should be changed. Um, or any sort of exposure to toxic chemicals that can be reduced. Um, so it collects all that information, highlights it, and um, helps improve, therefore, the long-term health outcomes of those firefighters. I love the sound of it. We've we've got some amazing fires happening right across the eastern coast and, and southern part of Australia right now. So this is definitely going to be something that has a market. Project Aster, also uh, out of Europe. What can you tell us about them? Yeah, they have an interesting solution that helps automate um, the overload of, for example, a 911 in the United States, uh, the emergency phone number um, system during a disaster. So um, oftentimes during during a major event, uh, it's overloaded. Uh, there's not enough operators to handle the load. So what they built was kind of an extension onto the system that can help prioritize the calls coming in um, based on the what they can sense from uh, recognizing the voice, the messages of the person uh, that's calling in. So they can kind of sense not only the words that they're saying, the needs they're expressing, but also understand a bit of the urgency in the voice. Uh, and so by doing that, they can help um, uh, responders identify, uh, automate and respond to, to to some of the needs coming from an area. Uh, again, it's it's not necessarily going to replace the, 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 the experts, the 911 experts, but it provides an alternative, a specific way that can complement the existing solution with a new approach um, to make smarter decisions and respond faster to people in need. Wow, I love the sound of that. Back in the late 80s, uh, we had uh, a series of bushfires here in Sydney, and we were doing this manually. We had a bunch of people go to various places where there were call center infrastructure and work around the clock to do exactly that, but in a manual process, and it would take about 65 minutes to do what sounds like this is going to do in seconds to try and find the right person and the right place to talk to the right people. Um, so I can, can only imagine what this is going to do in emergency environments, but also I can imagine that it's got a direct um, enterprise and business opportunity there. So that's going to be a no-brainer to go further. Uh, Project Rove out of North America uses AI by the looks of things to help rescue workers identify, um, uh, I think it was damaged roads and buildings so they can uh, get to victims faster. Give us a little insight into uh, what they're up to and where they came from. Sure, sure. So they're a set of students at UCLA, uh, and they created a solution that kind of does three things. Um, so they provide an SMS interface. And in fact, this is, it's not, you know, it seems 
you know, counterintuitive, SMS is an older technology, um, but it's also one of the more reliable ones during disasters when the rest of the network, um, the data network is overloaded. So they provide an SMS um, interface where people can express their needs as well. Um, and the system will help, uh, will, will understand um, based on those needs, uh, what sort of response is required. So uh, they also take in those, um, those needs expressed by people in need, but they also, what they can do is group those together on a dashboard of people with similar needs. Um, so if people are in need of medical help, um, they're in a particular area, uh, it'll identify and, and bunch those folks together into a recommended path for response. Um, and so what the team also built is the dashboard that helps provide a optimized path to those people in need. Um, and uh, that's all in the service of uh, getting them help faster, as well as optimizing the route there so that more people can be helped as well. Wow, I love that. I love the fact that technology like short message service uh, or SMS uh, is used natively, again, very similar to what Project Al did with the, the features built into the Staten phone. And that is that sometimes the old tech, the base tech uh, that has existed for a long time is well deployed, well established, well supported. I think last time I looked at the market space, there's about three and a half billion active users on telco networks that use SMS on a daily basis. All through Africa, for example, banking is done via SMS because they don't really have internet access. And um, so this seems to be a really good fit because most of the time the telco networks, given that they are sitting on the uh, wireless uh, antenna uh, mostly these days in rural areas, was probably one of the last services to keep running until the power goes out. And they're also independently powered. Um, Project Sparrow. Um, now, this one's out of Asia Pacific and uh, has, now as we're looking at this, it, it seems to connect people with medical records and so forth so that if you've got a, a particular circumstance where you've got to try and help somebody uh, and they may not be able to help themselves or speak to you, you can figure out their history and background and, and, and address their needs. Give us a little insight into what Sparrow does. Yeah, yeah. And, and this uh, this echoes the theme I think we've seen in all the finalists. So number one, they build on technology or apps the user already has, um, and they help uh, route uh, people to the um, the needs that they have, right? So the theme for Golf Code this year was natural disasters, but also the health and well-being of individuals was kind of a, a, a big focus of what we did. So this was also, um, carrying with the theme of the other finalists, inspired by the personal experience of developers on the team. So the developers, um, they've got a lot of family associated with a particular hospital in India, um, and they're looking at ways to optimize um, how developers can, how, how, I'm sorry, end users can leverage things like WhatsApp, Messenger, whatever social media tools they already have, they plug into that um, and they can, they can understand um, the, the needs requests uh, from the developer, uh, from the end user and help them either route to automatic, an automatic uh, corpus of information about symptoms that they might be expressing, uh, or if not, connect them um, by proxy to a medical expert that can um, help guide them, uh, be it providing uh, mental health services, being it providing uh, diagnostics. Um, so that can be done in such a way that um, volunteers can be take part, um, obviously uh, real doctors, accredited um, folks at the institutions, but it provides essentially a mesh uh, that connects people with the help they need. And what's really cool about them too is they've built on Project OWL's um, solution um, to provide kind of an offline uh, availability of this higher level uh, service on top of it. So amazing, but it's it builds on the the, the social apps folks already have. Uh, it includes the corpus of, of common information from an industry standard medical uh, database, and it allows people to participate in the network and offer services to people in times of disasters. 
I love it. I think one of the biggest things that um, uh, causes loss of life in some of these circumstances or even uh, uh, not so much loss of life but certainly dire impact is exactly that whole challenge of the triage component. Uh, once you've got access to humans, you know, what blood type have they got? Um, how old are they? Have they got any other, uh, you know, uh, pre-documented conditions? Have they got a heart issue? Um, there's a number of things. Or, or, you know, have they got a, a particular thing that you need to treat them specially with? Um, and I can see this having very wide-reaching uh, uh, applications, not just in dire emergency, but also just day-to-day, where, where this seems to be, particularly in rural Australia, where remote medicine is very difficult to get to, and we have the flying doctor service, where if you break your arm on a farm, often the only way to get help is to have the aeroplane, an aeroplane fly in from the flying doctor service, pick you up, triage you in the air, and get you to the nearest hospital. Um, so I can see this thing being a massive uh, boon for, for regional and re- remote areas. Uh, final one, Helios. Now, this is out in North America. Um, from what I read, it uses uh, conversational services and uh, AI, particularly machine learning, to uh, – and there's a particular focus around mental health um, and getting to the right uh, case. And um, I think one of the things that, that I liked about this was that it could provide mental health at scale. So give us a little insight into kind of what Helios – what's the background behind that and who's involved in that project? Sure. So mental health is one of those um, medical issues that people overlook in the context of natural disasters. You know, we focus on other people, like you said, like a broken arm or someone who's in um, dire need of uh, blood transfusion or something like that. But mental health is, you know, it's, it's a big lasting impact of disasters. You know, people, they lose their, their home, they lose their livelihood, they lose their, their jobs, pets, close family members. Um, so there is a great impact that's often unseen on people as a result of disasters. And there are also, you know, a, a, a large, um, there's a group of, um, you know, mental health experts that can provide um, help to people, but often, you know, they're they're overworked or there may not be enough of them during a disaster. So what this, this solution does is essentially it provides an automated um, conversational interface to help as you, as you said, kind of triage the initial um, re- requests that come through for for help, for assistance, for assurance, and builds up a history of basically that conversation. Um, so it can automate that so it scales the, the input of information um, from people in need, and that can create a history that then a human caseworker can look at and understand whether they need to, where they need to prioritize help to particular individuals. So it provides that history, provides essentially a dashboard that caseworker can then have the handoff of that person and work directly with them after the fact. So it optimizes, um, you know, the, the help available, um, helps automate and capture some of the the common questions that are asked by people to kind of build a whole view of, of what this person needs and how you can deliver help to them effectively. Yeah, the, the underpinning thing about all of this is the scale and speed and pace that things have to be done at in an ideal circumstance to respond. I think this uh, takes it to yet another level that, as you said, I mean, there's a whole range of mental health uh, challenges out there. There's, um, you know, folk who actually have a long running mental health challenge where, uh, uh, you know, someone with Asperger's, for example, being uh, triaged in, in the field is presenting different challenges. But also if someone's tired and fatigued and starting to endure some mental health challenges uh, because they're just they're stressed and tired and emotional, that's also something that needs to be dealt with. And I think um, this, the fact that this can be done at scale across a broad area uh, is going to have some pretty exciting uh, future prospects beyond the obvious uh, use 
of being, you know, in an emergency scenario. Now, so let's let people know what we want them to do at the stage. So you've got five of these that have come down to the finalists. Uh, they've been described as uh, what will become the People's Choice winner, uh, which will become one of them. Um, people can have a look at the projects in more detail at developer.ibm.com slash callforcode slash projects. Um, we'll have all the links and other details in the uh, show description, and also we'll be sharing them broadly across social media. Um, what comes next, though? So once we get through this process where people go online and we'll get them a bunch of info on how to go and vote and get to the uh, TechCrunch page and choose one of these and, and become inspired by what you've shared about them and what they've read about them, they vote, uh, a winner comes out. What, what comes next at the stage? Um, when will the winners be unveiled and how do people get involved at this point? Sure. So there is a techcrunch.com page uh, that has the descriptions of those applications. And all you have to do is select uh, from a radio button uh, which one you think is going to be uh, the most What's your favorite? What's going to really make an impact? Uh, what's going to um, be something that you would love to see implemented, taken further, uh, expanded, uh, things like that? And so we're going to announce them at TechCrunch Disrupt on October 4th. Um, so we'll, we'll highlight the winners there. You can learn um, myself and other folks will be at TechCrunch. So you can ask, more inform- ask questions about them, learn more about them, um, get some more details on what they built. Um, and that will help us understand um, what sort of applications really resonate with people, right? And this is, um, it doesn't affect the results of what the eminent judges are doing with the finalists, but it's one more piece of data that help us understand. So even if it's not the same as the grand prize winner, uh, what are the great applications that code and response should put some resources behind uh, to, to bring to, to, to life? I like that. Well, you've certainly given some great insight into what the projects themselves are doing and, and a bit of background about people running them. But I, as you said, uh, listeners should definitely jump online. Uh, there's, there'll be links in the show description. Go to the techcrunch.com page, read the details about them, do a bit of homework, Google them. Uh, now, I'm going to admit that I actually did my background. I did have one in mind. As you've run through the description of the background, I, I actually changed my mind as we're on air now, <laughs> and I just voted as you were talking. Um, oh, excellent. So it, just so that people know how simple it is, it's literally, as you said, it's a, it's a f- five-checkpoint uh, a radio, series of radio buttons and a, a vote button. So I literally just voted now. So that's how simple it is for folk to get in, engaged, uh, to jump on the page read the detail of the, the background of the stories and the, the projects and obviously the insights you just shared now. Click on one, click vote, that's it. 30 seconds, you're done, and all that valuable data gets collected. Then it goes through the process you've just outlined. Now, there's some pretty amazing people who are involved in that, um, which we won't go into too much detail, um, but you mentioned before there's like former President Bill Clinton, I think it was, and a whole range of amazing folk. Um, once the winner is announced, um, well, firstly, it's when is the winner going to be announced? Uh, is that date set yet? Has that been locked down? I think um, the, October the 12th was mentioned before, was it? Yes, that's exactly so right. right. There's a yes, we're going to have the Code and Response Award um, at the United Nations uh, Delegates Dining Room, um, and we're going to unveil the winners there. Um, and highlight some of the other great solutions that came in. Um, and that'll help us kick off the next phase of supporting the next Project L, as it were, um, to deploy their solution in an area of need. I want to highlight that my view is that even though there is a single winner that uh, takes away the $200,000 cash prize and a bunch of other support, that as I said before, I think everybody who participates is in effect a winner. Um, and I know that there, there's, you know, it's not just a case of just one winner per se, but there's a, a bunch of tiered opportunities that come out of this. What can you tell us about sort of what uh, second, third and fourth, uh, fifth, et cetera, place uh, walk away with? 
Sure. So they also get uh, cash prizes. So second and third place get $25,000. Fourth and fifth get $10,000 each. Um, And they also get the support from the Linux Foundation um, to uh, optimize their open source repositories, take care of some best practices for community building, um, raising awareness of their projects so that they they can go beyond just the team that created them uh, and to get uh, support from external developers. So as you said, there's, there's people that participated in Call for Code, learning new, brand new skills. Uh, they can still apply those after the competition to, to improve the winners uh, and perhaps consolidate some similar ideas and bring their own innovation to the table. Um, so that's, uh, that's what we're doing uh, with the winners this year as well. And we are still supporting um, the runner-up from last year. So PD3R uh, was a second-place winner behind Project OWL last year. And they are an organization um, that with offices in Colombia and Nepal, and what they have done was created a visual recognition-based application uh, that can. It was built in the context of uh, what happened in the 2015 earthquake in Nepal um, to understand how to help people get back into their homes. So uh, it created a visual recognition tool for doing a quick assessment: is is a building something that can be rebuilt or re- retrofit, or is it something that has to be torn down, and therefore uh, help them make decisions on where to send their engineer years to do that retrofitting. So we're still supporting them. Uh, there's a bunch of other interesting applications that are involved in um, in the code and response solution inventory um, that we are providing support to. Um, so lots of different ways for the ideas to go forward, even if they're not the top winner. Well, naturally, we want everyone to jump online and, and, and participate in the uh, People's Choice uh, voting. Uh, I want to wrap up with one last uh, uh, quick point here. You, you talked about what you're doing with code and response. Uh, I'd like to maybe just uh, wrap up on us a little more insight into kind of uh, what you're doing with the whole IBM uh, Code Response uh, Initiative. And I guess, because I know there's been some recent announcements around what you're doing in that space and and some deployments around that initiative. Um, Tell us a bit more about the other side of what you do in the world around uh, Code Response and, and what are some of the things that have come out of that recently? Um, so yeah, we've seen lots. Of, we've we've created a lot of great partnerships with Code and Response. Um, so with the United Nations Office for da- Disaster Risk Reduction, with FirstNet, with Consumer Technology Association, uh, a group named uh, the P- Partnership for Inclusive Disaster Strategies. So we are not only providing the IBM experts to help these solutions, but we're linking them up with these public and private partners, so that they can uh, learn where they might uh, pivot their idea to fit a true uh, mar- a market niche or true need, even if they had created an application for the competition, um, there are ways they might pivot their idea based on a better understanding of how their solution could perform in the market and be sustainable for the long term. So uh, definitely connecting them with uh, experts, um, definitely uh, making sure they have the right mentorship and that they're able to um, you know, build sustainable things, which is the, the end goal of Call for Code and Code and Response. That's pretty exciting. I, I think there's about uh, 1.4 million listeners right now that want your job. Um, <laughs> I, I can imagine you jump out of bed every day just eager and keen to get into the office and, and just get amongst it. Um, I would love to throw one last thing if I could at you. I, and thank you very much for some amazing insights into what each of the projects do, what's uh, happening uh, at the stage around the second year of Call for Code, an amazing project. And, and congratulations on uh, hitting the second year. And the first year was an amazing success story. This is just taking it to the next level again. Um, but uh, I love to invite my guests to sort of take a hold of a virtual crystal ball and gaze into it for a moment. Because uh, from here on, I mean, there's, obviously we've got the, the next stage in the competition itself and, 
uh, once the People's Choice uh, winner has been selected and, and the relevant folk uh, pick a final winning solution and, and the whole process that wraps up the, uh, the second year, beyond this, if you were to gaze into a virtual crystal ball and sort of imagine what the next 12 to 18 months might hold, um, I wonder if you can give us some insights and kind of what your, your gut feeling of where some of these things might go. What are some of the, the big ideas that people should be thinking about and potentially even thinking about year three? Yeah, yeah. So a couple of thoughts there. So we are entering the third year of Call for Code. So I do see an additional base of open source projects coming into next year's competition. And now now that Red Hat is is, is part of IBM, I do see a lot more uh, reach into open source communities with brand new ideas as well as support for the existing ones. Um, so bringing uh, all their expertise on the best practices um, in open source and helping that uh, improve how we do Call for Code next year uh, to an even greater extent. Um, I also do see next year kind of um, delivering on the promise of uh, Project Owl um, and other winners of actually having products that were created as part of Call for Code and actually being in the market, um, being uh, solutions where they have a sustainable business model around them. So uh, they'll have, they'll have their, their, their customers, they'll have a business plan um, that's that's been executed. So definitely looking forward to you know, just that full pipeline of innovation now to, to making a difference. Um, the, yeah, and the, the other things I'm thinking about are, you know, we'll, we'll see lots more participation from different types of, um, uh, lots, uh, different types of roles of people entering the competition. So as I mentioned, when we launched, we were thinking about matching developers with, um, subject matter experts, assuming the developers would come up with the solutions. But what we've seen in this year's, um, finalists and hopefully next year as well, is you, these cross-functional teams where you actually have a first responder, a firefighter on the team with you as uh, guiding the development that's happening. So a lot more cross-functional participation, students, enterprise developers, first responders, things like that. And um, the final thing I kind of see around this is, is building on that is people are realizing the power of technology and how much more accessible it is um, to create something quickly, for example, starting with a, an IBM code pattern for AI, and using that to develop something, learn some skills, and actually go solve something that's important to them, a pressing issue in their community. Um, and they don't necessarily have to be a developer to do that. They can be someone who just wants to make a difference, and hopefully Call for Code inspires them to do that. Wow. Uh, that's probably one of the most awesome wrap-ups I've had for a long time. Uh, Daniel, it's been an absolute pleasure to catch up with you and spend an hour with you, and thank you so much for making time to uh, join us. Really love getting to, to know you better and some of the insights around where you've come from yourself personally and your amazing career and the, the awesome job title of Chief Technology Officer, both for IBM Code and Response as well as Call for Code, and congratulations on a second year of the event. It's just been amazing to watch it grow. Great. Well, thanks, Des. Thanks for having me. This has been exciting uh, to talk to you again this year. Indeed. And we'll definitely have you on the show again. I loved your uh, bio where it described you. I think they, they, they described you as addressing the world's greatest challenges with sustainable technology. And I think that's pretty much what you need in the back of your business card. Uh, it describes <laughs> it in, in, in a nutshell. Uh, folks, there will be a lot of information in the show description around uh, where to go to to take part in the People's Choice voting and learn more about the project itself for Call for Code. Obviously, we would love you to connect with uh, Daniel Crook on uh, various social media platforms. Give him a shout out on LinkedIn if you're on that platform. Follow him on Twitter. Uh, you'll be able to find him there very quickly at twitter.com slash Daniel Crook. That's K-R-O-O-K. Uh, thanks for tuning in. And uh, once again, Daniel, it's been great to catch up with you and we look forward to having you on the show again soon. Great. Thanks, Des. Have a great day.